There are times in everybody's life, especially during childhood, where we feel an intense pressure to try and fit in, fit in with those around us. I remember when I was in fifth grade, everyone in my class was really into guess jeans, like a certain brand of jeans. I assume those are still a brand. I'm not 100% sure. But everybody in fifth grade wore guess jeans. And so I honestly could not care less what brand of clothing I was wearing. But because everybody had them and I didn't, I wanted to fit in so much that, you know, I convinced my parents to spend extra money and to go to the only store in the mall that sold them and to find these guest jeans. Now, what the salesperson didn't tell me is that he had sold me a pair of women's jeans. I didn't know the difference. I wasn't really into this thing. I just knew that I needed to have a pair of guest jeans. And so I had no idea. I was just trying to fit in. Everybody else in my class knew because the triangle on my backside was red instead of green. And so what do you do? You know, did I swear off trying to fit in from that moment forth and forevermore? No, I went back and exchanged those guest jeans for one with a green triangle so that I could fit in. We all feel that pressure to try and fit in. We, we don't want to be marginalized or mocked because we're not into or excited about the right things. But every, when everybody else is, is really excited about something that, that we're not particularly excited about, we can actually then become insecure about our own real interests. We become shy or, or feel pressure to kind of mute or hide what I'm really into in order to kind of forefront what everybody else is into so I can look good. Which doesn't even necessarily mean we're being completely dishonest. I might like guest jeans, or, or if you take music, you know, everybody right now might be really into Justin Timberlake's new album. I might like Justin just fine, and, and but, you know, if, if I'm really honest about kind of the music... I, Let's talk about Johnny Cash. That's where I want to go in that conversation. But, but I might hold that back and say, yeah, Justin, man of the woods, you know, and, and try and fit in. Uh, we feel like, you know, because everybody else likes it, I don't want to be left out. We all do this, especially when we're young, but it doesn't necessarily go away when we get old. And it's a really silly game. If you, if we, when you step back and just look at it, it's a really silly game. But there's a more serious version of this that happens when it comes to our passion about spiritual things, about ultimate things. And the temptation to become timid or insecure or shy or even ashamed of the gospel of Jesus because everyone else around us seems to be really excited about something or someone else. And that's the kind of pressure that the church being written to through the book of Hebrews in the first century, that's the kind of pressure that they were feeling, this pressure to adjust their passions or their loyalties or even their doctrine and faith in order to avoid being persecuted or marginalized by those around them. And based on what the author addresses throughout the book, it seems that the pressure that this particular congregation was facing was a pressure to go back to Judaism, to 
go back to the law of Moses, to the priesthood and the sacrifices in the Old Covenant, as though Jesus wasn't really the Messiah or, or he hadn't really come and fulfilled that law and begun a new age in Christ. And so the author has made it his goal to demonstrate in every way possible that Jesus is better than the Old Covenant and how our greatest need is therefore to hold fast to our confession of faith in him despite whatever opposition we might face, despite the pressure we might feel to fit in, fly under radar with respect to our faith in Jesus. And so far, he's shown us how Jesus is better than the prophets of the Old Testament, how Jesus is the full and final revelation of God's salvation. He's shown us how Jesus is better than the angels who delivered that message of the Old Covenant, how he is above them as both creator and king, and became a little lower than them in order to save us, sharing in our humanity and suffering for our sin. But he is, the author's only getting started. He is, I mean, we're only beginning to look at chapter 3. We got 13 chapters in this book. He is only getting started in making his case for the supremacy of Christ. And in chapter 3, he turns to a new subject, another uh, mode of comparison, And shows in the next couple of chapters how Jesus is better than Moses in our passage and then better than Joshua in the passage to follow. We're going to consider how Christ is better than Moses this morning. How we have a better ambassador in him. So if you think about it, Moses Moses was without doubt one of the, if not the most influential and famous Israelites in all of ancient Israelites' history. I mean, last year we worked through the book of Exodus, where we met Moses and we saw who he is, where he came from, how God used him to deliver his people from slavery. Moses was God's ambassador to Israel. He sent him in order to lead God's people out of slavery in Egypt. You remember how he was called at the burning bush and Moses shows up there, not really knowing what's going on, and God reveals himself and then sends him on this mission to bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. So he's an ambassador sent by God, but then he's also an ambassador who intercedes before God on behalf of God's people, especially when Israel goes astray. After God rescues Israel from Egypt, you may recall, if you've read Exodus before, if you were here through, through that series, how often Israel grumbled about the fact that they'd just been rescued from slavery. Because they're in the wilderness, and they're hungry, and the God who just like did the ten plagues and everything and split the sea, apparently he's not able to provide. And, and so they're grumbling against Moses for bringing them out of Egypt, and ultimately against God. And when that happens... And it happens a lot in Exodus through uh, Numbers. Moses is the one who appears before God to intercede, to kind of seek God's mercy and forgiveness on behalf of the people. Even though his brother Aaron is given the priesthood, Moses is the one who often acts as Israel's high priest. Uh, Not least because Aaron was kind of part of the problem a few times. If you remember the golden calf incident, Aaron, who's supposed to be the priest, ends up making the idol. Or or later in Numbers 12, when 
Moses, uh, Moses' brother Aaron and sister Miriam, they get jealous of Moses' unique uh, position as a prophet, and they decide they want to uh, share his, his level as well. Moses ends up interceding for God's people, acting like that high priest that they need. Because Moses does, in fact, have a unique relationship. You don't have to flip there, but in Numbers 12, when Miriam and Aaron are speaking against Moses and trying to position themselves as prophets on the same level as him, listen to how the Lord responds. He says, Numbers 12, verse 6, Hear my words. If there's a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly, not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you, Aaron and Miriam, not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? So Moses had a special, unique relationship with God. And God affirmed that relationship that that Moses was faithful. He was faithful as a servant in all of God's household. He was God's ambassador to ancient Israel, the apostle, the high priest. He was the model prophet and the mediator of the old covenant, the covenant that often ends up being identified with his name. We call it the law of Moses. It's called that often throughout scripture. So Moses is intimately tied with this old covenant uh, with Israel, and, and that was a good thing. He was found faithful in all God's house. And so if you want to make a case for the lasting superiority of Israel's old covenant, emphasizing its association with Moses is a pretty powerful strategy because Moses was a big deal especially among Jewish circles in the first century, which, again, that seems to be where the pressure is coming from on this early congregation. Loyalty to Moses was basically the same thing as loyalty to God. That's how they saw it. And that was a common angle played by the Jewish leaders in the early days of the gospel. If you uh, think of the story in John chapter 9, when the man who is born blind is healed and he is Uh, explaining what happened, the Jewish leaders who don't want to hear it, they hurl insults at the man while hiding behind their loyalty to Moses. John 9, 28. And they reviled him, this man who's born blind and been healed. They reviled him saying, you are his disciple, Jesus' disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken through Moses. But as for this man, we don't know where he comes from. So we're loyal to Moses. We, we don't know about this Jesus character that you're talking about. Or Acts chapter 6, another example. The Jews who are trying to dispute with Stephen as he's explaining the gospel of Jesus. And the, the Jews who ultimately incite the crowd to murder Stephen for his witness, they do so by portraying the message of Jesus as a threat to Moses. So Acts chapter 6, verse 11, they secretly instigated men who said, we've heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. 
And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. They set up false witnesses who said, this man never speaks, never ceases to speak words against this holy place, the temple, and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. How dare he? Moses to be loyal to Moses was to be loyal to God. And this Jesus figure, he's getting in the way. Everyone was excited about Moses. So if you wanted to be seen as loyal to God, a loyal follower to God, attaching yourself to Moses was a sure way to please the critics. On the other hand, advocating for the supremacy of Jesus was a sure way to get yourself in trouble. And, and so that impulse to fit in, to avoid being mocked or marginalized or even persecuted, it was really easy, uh, and, and the author of Hebrews knew this, it was really easy to become timid or shy about their commitment to the gospel, about their, their boast and their hope in the gospel, and, and kind of pull that back and put forward their association with Moses instead. He was... God's ambassador to Israel. He was the great servant of the Lord. And when you think about it, it's pretty easy for us to do something similar today. Probably not with Moses. People aren't necessarily running around our, our, you know, the break room at work saying how great Moses is. But there's other things today people are really excited about. And there's a temptation to kind of align ourselves with whatever people are excited about and kind of mute or pull back our excitement in the gospel. We can become timid or insecure or even ashamed of the gospel because everyone's really excited about something else. So we, we mute what we're really passionate about. We mute the main thing Jesus has given us to proclaim and instead we emphasize the interests or the causes that everyone around us is going to like and appreciate and, and therefore we'll find approval uh, and acceptance or credibility because we're into that. Um, you know, for instance, everyone today is excited about social justice, the, uh, which is a good thing. Social justice, the um, doing good for people or loving your neighbor, trying to make the world a better place. That is a good, wonderful thing, and it's something everybody's into right now. Uh, and, and so, People are, are, are excited about that. They're not particularly excited today about what the gospel says about sin, however. If you want to draw a contrast, that, that sin really is sinful and worthy of God's eternal condemnation. That's not a topic people are excited about. Or they're not particularly excited about the exclusivity of Christ, that Jesus really is the only way of being reconciled with the Father and finding forgiveness of that sin that's so dangerous. Uh, people are not particularly excited about holiness or obedience or dying to self and following Christ. You're supposed to follow your own heart. What's this die to self thing about? Uh, especially if that means submitting our sexual ethic or our money ethic or any cherished ethic to God and his will. Folks aren't excited about that. But drilling wells in Africa, uh, building schools in Haiti, uh, reducing carbon emissions, providing after-school programs in underprivileged areas, fighting to end racism, poverty, human trafficking. 
everyone is excited about that, which is a good thing. Those are good things to be excited about. Uh, but it's, it's become this new measure of credibility in our society. Uh, you just think of the Super Bowl commercials from a few weeks ago. You can no longer sell pickup trucks or Coca-Cola without taking a stand on some environmental or social cause. We didn't learn anything about the quality of Coke, but we learned what Coke was doing to make the world a better place. Or, uh, you know, diversity, clean water, thinking first responders. All the commercials were about social justice causes, which again, great thing, but it doesn't tell you anything about the quality of the car or anything like that. Um, in fact, the one ad that didn't play the social justice card was Jeep. They just showed you how their Jeep can drive through a river and climb a mountain. That was the whole commercial. They got criticism afterwards from fish conservationists who, who got after them for showing how habitat was being destroyed in their commercial. So, so this is the new credibility, right? If you want to be praised for your products today, or if you want to be praised for your spirituality today, if you want to fit in, when it comes to religion, emphasize your passion for social justice. Get excited about what everyone else is excited about. But don't get too crazy about Jesus and the cross, because that'll get you into trouble. And here's a super important thing to realize in this. It's not that there's a problem with social justice. Or being passionate about making the world a better place. Again, those are all good and important things to be passionate about and to give ourselves to. In fact, you could argue social justice is an implication of the gospel. If we really believe the gospel, if we really love God and love our neighbor, we're going to care about clean water. And we're going to care about serving those in underprivileged areas. We're going to care about guarding the cleanliness of our environment and ending race, racism and discrimination. Those things ought to all matter. We don't have to treat good things as bad things in order to make Jesus look better. You don't have to treat something good as though it's bad in order to make Jesus look better. But we do have to take confidence that Jesus is actually better. That he alone can deal comprehensively with all of the problems in this world. All of the sin and brokenness. That in him we have a heavenly calling and an, internal, an eternal inheritance that can never perish or spoil or fade. And that his gospel is not a matter of shame or, or timidity, but a matter of glory and pride and world-changing hope. And so... To see this, though, to see and when you're faced with that pressure to fit in and to see the supremacy of Jesus in the midst of what everyone else is excited about, what the author tells us we need to do to see that is to consider Jesus. We need to slow down and take a hard, close, careful look at who Jesus is. That's the command in this passage. Therefore, holy brothers who share in a heavenly calling... Consider Jesus, study him, ponder him, and consider him in comparison to that which everyone else is excited about. 
Consider him specifically here in comparison to Moses. Everyone in the first century, in this circle here at least, everyone loved Moses. How does Jesus compare? If we're going to be convinced of his supremacy and confident in our confession in him, even when that confidence is not shared by those around us, we have to take an honest inventory of Christ. And that's what he's doing here in verses 1 through 6 with regard specifically to Moses. And again, just like what we were talking about a minute ago, you don't have to treat good things as bad things in order to make Jesus look better. At no point in his discussion of Moses does he tear Moses down in order to make Jesus look good. Uh, that's not same thing with the angels earlier in chapter one. He doesn't tear the angels down to make Jesus look good. He recognizes how good they are and then shows how Jesus is even better. And that's the same way he approaches Moses in our passage. He could have made his case that Jesus is more faithful than Moses because that would have been true. I mean, you just go to Numbers 20. Moses did not have, he was not batting a thousand in his faithfulness to God. He could have made the case that way, but that's not how he does it. Instead, he appeals to Moses' reputation of faithfulness within God's household as a positive parallel to show that Jesus was faithful like Moses. So look again at verses 1 and 2. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. You can hear the echo of Numbers 12 there. So Jesus is faithful like Moses. If you're excited about Moses, you should be excited about Jesus. Your loyalty uh, should be shown to Christ. You should pay attention to Jesus because he was a faithful ambassador, an apostle and high priest, one sent by God and who represents God's people to God. And so, so he starts with a positive comparison. He's not tearing Moses down to make Jesus look better. But he does then argue very directly for the supremacy of Jesus over Moses. Again, not by calling Moses unfaithful, but by demonstrating how Jesus was faithful to God at a different and much higher level than Moses. Moses was faithful within God's house as a servant. Jesus is faithful over God's house as a son. Both are faithful, but Jesus is faithful at a higher level and therefore worthy of greater glory. Verse 3 again. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. Every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. As good as Moses is, Jesus is better than Moses. Not because Moses was bad, but because Jesus was better. It's a difference of identity and role. Moses was a servant who, who was given authority within God's household 
and found faithful in it. He did what God sent him to do. He led the people of Israel out. He established the covenant. He spoke on behalf of God. So he did what God sent him to do, and he interceded on behalf of God's people when they went astray. But he operated as a member of that household, not as somebody who stood above it. If ancient Israel were a sports team, Moses would have been the general manager. But Jesus is the owner. He's not just part of the organization. He stands above it. He owns it. He rules it. And therefore, he's worthy of greater glory because of that. He's faithful at a higher level. The faithful son who has authority over the household and who completes the bigger mission of redeeming that household, not just from slavery in Egypt, but from sin and death. He's a a greater apostle, a greater ambassador. Uh, Consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Jesus is a better ambassador. And he describes him here uh, with two phrases, apostle and high priest. Now, we, we Almost never. In fact, I, need, I didn't double-check this beforehand. I think this might be the only place where Jesus is called an apostle in the New Testament. It's not a common way of describing the Son of God. It's a word we usually see related to his apostles, right? His disciples whom he, who witnessed his death and resurrection and who were entrusted with the gospel. Um, but when you think about it, the word apostle means a sent one, one who is sent on a mission. And Jesus was the ultimate apostle sent from God himself on a mission to save us. He speaks of himself in those terms all throughout the Gospel of John. He says in John 5.36, For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. I've been sent by God, and and you can tell that because of what I'm doing for God. So he was sent by God, and the mission he was sent to accomplish was much bigger than the mission Moses was sent to accomplish. Uh, He he describes it in John chapter 3, for God did not send his son into the world to to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Not just ancient Israel saved, but the world saved. That was his bigger mission. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Jesus comes with a bigger mission. So he's the ultimate apostle, the ultimate one sent uh, for the salvation of all nations. So he's an apostle, but he's also the ultimate high priest. The author of Hebrews uh, is going to unpack that at length. Uh, we're, this is, we've already seen it come up twice. We're going to see it, I don't know, a lot more throughout this book. Uh, he makes this big case that Jesus is the ultimate high priest. Just as Moses and the priests of Israel interceded for God's people, seeking mercy and forgiveness for them, So, chapter 9 tells us, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, the heavenly tabernacle, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, 
but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. He's a better high priest, the ultimate high priest. The, the redemption he secures for us is not temporary like the priests of ancient Israel. It's eternal. So Jesus is a better ambassador. He accomplishes God's mission and intercedes for God's people at a higher level, the highest level. Not merely as a servant, but as a son. And because he has done this and shown himself to be faithful at a higher level than Moses, he is worthy of more glory than the most faithful servant within the house. Because he's the son over the house. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. I mean, if you think about some of the beautiful buildings that you've seen in your life, um, just you know, go downtown to Boston and, and you think of the State House or Trinity Church or the Custom House Tower. There's some incredibly gorgeous buildings. And you immediately recognize the glory of those when you see them. But that building didn't design itself, right? It didn't construct itself. The beauty and glory of that building is a reflection of the beauty and glory of the one who designed it and built it. And so God, as creator, is worthy of more glory than his creation. And Jesus, as the author and finisher of our faith, is worthy of more glory than Moses. He's a better ambassador. And the irony, the irony for the early church, for those who were trying to pressure the early church to throw their lot in with Moses, to fit in that way, The irony for those who were really excited about Moses and defined loyalty to God as loyalty to Moses and sought to guard his honor and and pressured Christians to fit in by abandoning Jesus and returning to the Old Covenant, the irony is that they weren't actually honoring Moses in that process. Because if you pay attention to Moses, guess who he's pointing to? To Jesus. That's the very case Jesus himself makes. That's what the author tells us here. He, he testified to the things that were to be spoken later. Or Jesus puts it this way in John 5, speaking to Jews who kind of took their pride in their loyalty to Moses and used that as an excuse to reject Jesus. Jesus says to them, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is they that bear witness about me Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. If you really want to be loyal to Moses, trust Jesus, because that's what Moses was pointing to all along. Jesus is the better ambassador who completes God's salvation. He completes the story. He accomplishes a bigger mission and intercedes for God's people, not merely as a servant, but as a son. He's better than Moses and better than anything else that we might be tempted to get excited about and and kind of minimize him. Jesus is better than social justice. Caring for the poor is urgent and good and necessary, and the church ought to be committed to it. 
But only Jesus can offer the kind of bread through which we will never hunger again or the kind of water that will well up in us to eternal life. As Kevin DeYoung and Greg Gilbert have said, there is something worse than death and something better than human flourishing. If we hope only for renewed cities and restored bodies in this life, we are of all people most to be pitied. So Jesus is better than that. It doesn't mean that's bad. It just means he's better. Or similarly, advocating for racial harmony is urgent and good and necessary and beautiful. I just preached about that four weeks ago. We need to be committed to that. It it is super important. We need to be at the forefront of affirming the image of God in all people and working for justice and reconciliation. But only the gospel of Jesus is actually powerful enough to take what has been divided by sin and bring it back together to unite us to one another and to God through the cross. Which means that if you're really excited about social justice, but not excited about Jesus, then just like with Moses, there's a a severe irony. An irony that those who who are really excited about social justice today and define spirituality as social activism and pressure Christians to fit in by, by abandoning the claims of the gospel and just only loving your neighbor, they aren't actually accomplishing justice. Not in any real lasting sense of the term. Not in any real truly world changing sense of the term. Because real, lasting justice, making right what's wrong in this broken and sinful world, that's only possible ultimately through the cross, and it will only be realized ultimately in the new creation. On the cross, Jesus deals decisively with sin and wickedness and evil. He made our sin his sin so that sin might be dealt with justly. As, he pour, as God poured the full weight of his wrath out on Christ in our place, that, that sin was really dealt with justly, and that sinners, the unjust, could be justified through faith in him. On the cross, Christ made not just our sins his own. He made the sins committed against us his own. That he might take the pain and the suffering and bear it fully and free us to be able to forgive. And when he returns, he will put away all evil, all sin, all injustice. There will be no more sin, no more death, no more pain, no more tears. All will be made new. And the world will be just as it was meant to be. And so anyone who really cares about lasting justice should be a proud advocate of the gospel, not embarrassed or ashamed or shy about it. And, and I use social justice just as one example. There are countless things that we can get excited about, that the world's excited about. There are countless causes or people or ideas that we can kind of align ourselves with in order to look good while muting our true hope and boast in the gospel. Family values, career success academic achievement, financial stability. That list is endless. 
There's lots of ways that we can try and look good while muting the gospel. But when we compare, when we consider Jesus and compare him at every level to everything, we see that in every way he is always better. He's always better. He is faithful at a higher level. He accomplishes God's redemption in such a way that every other good thing that we can rightly give ourselves to is but a shadow or an echo of the ultimate power of Christ. He is not just faithful within God's house as a servant. He is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are that household. That's what Hebrews tells us. If we hold fast our confession to Christ. We are the heirs of the salvation that he accomplishes through our faith in him. And so our hope in Christ, no matter how much we stand out because of it, or no matter how much we risk to lose in ridicule or rejection or or whatever shape that takes, our hope in Christ should never be a matter of timidity or shame, but of pride and confidence in him, the better ambassador. Hebrews tells us to hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Our boasting. He says boasting there. I didn't think we were supposed to be boastful. It's not not in an arrogant sort of way, but in a confident pride that Jesus really is better and that what he offers really is better than anything else. To be confident and secure and rejoicing in that. Not apologetic or, or, you know, I want to do these good things and I'm really sorry, I should probably tell you about this too. Boast in Christ. That's something to hold our heads up about. That we have an ambassador and a confident hope. In Christ, we have confidence in our identity. We have confidence in our inheritance. In the love of the Father. We have confidence that no matter what happens in this life, our hope is secure because it's been secured by Christ. And so as chapter 10 puts it, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, to walk straight into the presence of God by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. He is faithful over God's house as a son. And so there is no reason to hide our faith under a veil of whatever we think the world will find acceptable. Or to apologize for believing that Jesus is the greatest treasure that this world affords. We can hold our heads high and hold the gospel out with confidence and pride in the glory of Jesus. 
He's a better ambassador who accomplishes God's mission and intercedes with God's, for God's people, not merely as a servant, but as a son. And there's no greater treasure and no better advocate than him. Let's pray. Lord, may we take confidence in Christ. May our hearts be emboldened to hope boldly, not with timidity or fear or shyness or, or even embarrassment. May, we, may our hearts be bold in the confidence and hope that we have in you. And may that, that confidence not be a matter of arrogance or pride, as though we're better or we figured something out. May it rather be a matter of joy and delight and, and passionate love for you and for our neighbors and the desire for them to know that greater joy. So, Lord, when we find ourselves tempted to t- kind of mute our faith or, or back off a little bit and, and, and emphasize something else in order to fit in, Lord, let us not treat what is truly good as bad in order to make Jesus look better. Let us treat it as good, but let us show and believe and live as though Jesus is better. God, would we do that as your faithful servants by Christ's grace and by your Spirit's power. May our hearts take confidence in you. We ask it in your Son's name. Amen.